Friends, this is a banner week for me. Look what happened while I was writing this sermon. The cover to my Bible finally fell off as it has been threatening to do for years. I think that's a good sign, means it's well used. This is the Bible that I got for religious studies classes in undergrad. It's still got my maiden name uh, and old email in there. That's fun. Uh, but it is open to Numbers 11, where we will dive in shortly. But first, I have to tell you about the worst improv game ever. Um, this is my least favorite improv game, and it's called Story. I had a sabbatical earlier in the year, and one of the things I did was take this improv class. And improv is where you're like, you're acting, but there's no script. Uh, your actors are just making it up together, um, responding off each other. And we play improv games, so there's a little bit of structure and direction to what you're doing. So here's how story works. You've got a group of people and they're all lined up um, and they're all facing forward like I am right now. And someone called the referee stands uh, in front of them. And, and when they point to you, you had to start telling a story, like just making up whatever kind of story you want. And you have to keep talking until their finger switches and they point at someone else, at which point that person, either mid-sentence or mid-word, has to pick up where you left off and tell the story from there. And they keep moving their finger from person to person and together you tell the story. Now it can be really fun because you can kind of mess with your teammates. Like if you're really good at a British accent, which I'm not, but if you were like, you can write someone into the story who has a British accent and then you can watch after the finger moves, watch your partner try and fail miserably to speak in a British accent. So um, it can be really fun. But here's the problem. Here's my problem with this game. I like stories with nice, tidy endings. I like, I like sports movies that end with the championship or rom-coms that end with the wedding. I like sermons, nice, tight sermons that tie all of the strands back together at the end. I like stories that come full circle, tie it off with a bow, like happily ever after and all is well that ends well. The end. I like stories that end with the end and you know it's the end. So the first time that I'm playing story, here's what happens, right? So I'm with my group and uh, we're up there. We've got this whole thing going about like an alligator named Lucy who's got this high-pitched squeaky voice. And then we have an armadillo named Arthur who talks in this low gruff voice. And Arthur and Lucy, they're traveling all around trying to resolve their unresolved parent issues um, together. And my teammates keep adding to the story and sending them here and there and I'm thinking like, Okay, people, this is getting a little bit out of hand. It's time to rein this in a little bit. So then the finger points at me and I'm like, all right, I got this. So then they jumped in their convertible, went to McDonald's and ordered the biggest Big Macs you've ever seen. And they realized that this was what they had been yearning for their entire life. All of their problems were now solved. And so they drove off together into the sunset with full bellies and full hearts and a Big Mac in each hand. Which is a great ending to the story, right? So I stopped talking and I'm very pleased with myself, except the referee's still there pointing at me with this finger. And I'm like, but he's like, and I'm like, and he's like, like, you gotta keep going. And so that was when I totally freaked out and just started word vomiting stuff. And when we get to the end of that story, then the guy says, okay, rule number one of story. The story is never over. 
The players don't get to decide when the story ends. The referee decides when the story ends. So never bring the story to an end because you don't know it might not actually be the end. You might need to keep going. Now, this gets us nicely to numbers because often in the Bible, um, after the main story is over, the writer will throw in this little extra bit. And often it's those little extra bits that end up being the juiciest parts of all. Sometimes this happens with a story that has ended seemingly badly. Um, so like the powers that be have done their worst. Um, they seem to have taken the day, but wait, there's a plot twist and a surprise ending that changes anything, everything. Like, I mean, like Exodus, right? Like people keep trying and failing to escape from slavery in Egypt. Um, they do manage to flee, but then it's not working. And there they are trapped. Pharaoh's armies coming behind them. The Red Sea is in front of them. They are trapped. End of story. Except, oh wait, a road opens up through the waters. Or, you know, what's the most obvious one, right? Surprise ending story in our faith? Easter. Easter, right? Jesus has been arrested, tried, executed, buried. Oh, but wait, empty tomb. Other times, this happens where the main story seems to end just fine on its own, but then there's this little, like, seemingly aside thrown in at the end, and then when you investigate that seemingly random aside, it ends up to be the key to how we understand the whole main story that came before it, and that is what happens in this reading from Numbers. So let me tell you... Let's see if I can read. Um, feel free to grab your own Bibles, by the way, and um, check out what happens in Numbers 11 right before this story, because it is a doozy. So they've just started off right into the wilderness towards the promised land, and they've barely started off when the people start complaining to the Lord about their misfortunes. God gets angry, burns up part of their camp. So then Moses cries out to the Lord, and the Lord puts out the fires. Then it happens again, right? It says they had a strong craving and they begin to weep saying, oh, if only we had meat. Do you remember all the meat we used to eat in Egypt? Do you remember the fish, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the garlic? And now all we have is this manna. So God gets angry again, but this time Moses gets angry too. Moses, who's been leading them. And Moses starts complaining to the Lord, why have you put the burden of all of these people on me? Did I conceive these people? Did I give birth to them? That you should say, hey, carry them around on your bosom. Like a nursing mother carries her suckling child who demands to be fed every two hours. They come weeping to me for meat. Where am I supposed to get them meat? I am not able to carry these people alone. It is too heavy for me. If this is the way you're going to treat me, I would rather be dead. If you have found any favor with me at all, I would rather you end this right now than make me put up with these demanding people for one more second. And that moment, that exact moment is where we get to our passage that Pete read for us. But wait, before we get to our passage, I forgot there's a couple more verses and it's the best I laughed out loud when I heard these verses. So after Moses does this rant, right? Before we get to this passage, I forgot this part. Um, before we get to this passage, God says to Moses, okay, 
They want meat? Well, go tell them this. You want meat? I'll give you meat. I'll give you meat not just for one day or two days or 20 days. I'll give you meat every day for an entire month. I'll give you so much meat, it will come out of your nostrils. That is a direct quote. It will come out of your nostrils. It will become loathsome to you. And Moses says, mm, is it really even possible for you to find that much meat that it would come out of our nostrils? And God says, are there any limits to my power? Now we shall see whether my word is true or not. And that, that is the moment where we get to the passage that Pete read. How does anybody ever say the Bible is boring? It's so good. Um, what I want you to see, and what's kind of hard to see without having the Bibles in front of you, um, is that what happens both before and after our passage um, is, a, is a pattern that persists throughout like the entire book of Numbers. So for almost the entire book, it's like the people are stuck in this loop. The people complain, God gets angry and punishes them. Moses speaks to God on their behalf, God relents. And it might sound kind of barbaric to us. In fact, I, I hope it does sound barbaric to us, this idea of a God punishing people for crying out. Um, but it would have sounded completely normal to the original audience. This was totally standard by, for how cultures at that time thought of relating to the gods. They imagined that the gods were violent, vindictive, capricious, demanding, uncaring, and dangerous. And like, of course people thought that gods were that way because life back then was violent, vindictive, capricious, demanding, uncaring, and dangerous. The line of survival was so thin, right? And they're always just one flood, one drought, one famine, one war, one disease away from like total destruction. And, and there doesn't seem to be any logic to it, right? Like there doesn't seem to be any logic to who is able to prosper and who gets blotted off the face of the earth. So the gods, as they conceived of them, they were not caring or relational or approachable. And that's why they had this whole system of intermediaries like Moses to approach the gods on your behalf so you could stay as far away from them as possible. And just consider that maybe the writers of Numbers, they capture this pattern, this repeating loop, not to endorse this kind of religion, but to emphasize its ultimate futility, right? As the same thing keeps happening again and again and again, like does anything ever change? Can anything ever really change? Is humanity doomed to keep repeating its same mistakes? Are we just trapped forever in this endless loop of trying and feeling to appease vengeful and violent gods? But then we get to verse 26. And verse 26 is a rare break in the pattern. Two men remain at the camp, right? Eldad and Maydad. They don't go to the designated prophesying location. And they probably were not on the pre-approved registered to prophesy list. Um, and the reason we know this is because if you read it carefully, there's something off about this verse. Like you see how it says they were among those registered. Well, if you look back at verse, remember it says 70 people were selected 70 people went to the tent, 70 people received the Spirit. 
that doesn't make sense, right? Like if there were 70 people picked and 70 people were there, but two stayed back, that would mean that 72 had been picked. So something is off. And the thing that's off is that that phrase, they were among those registered, that is what is known in biblical studies as a scriptural variant. So what that means is that when scholars compare all of the oldest scrolls that have this story recorded on them, some versions have that phrase and some versions don't. And the older the scroll is, the less likely it is to include that phrase about them being registered. So do you know what this means? This means that someone at some point who was editing this manuscript was uncomfortable with the idea of non-registered prophets, of someone who wasn't on the list being touched by the Spirit. And they were so uncomfortable with it that they actually rewrote the story to try and make it more palatable. And so it's like they're saying, like they're thinking to themselves, okay, they weren't at the pre-approved location, but at least let's say that they were on the pre-approved list that Moses chose, right? And did you see they even make a point of noting that those 70 who were put on the pre-approved list, that this was the only time they ever made a prophecy, never again after that, just this one time. So some editor at some point did not like the idea of the Spirit speaking through anyone, anywhere, anytime. And it's not just the editor, right? Someone else is uncomfortable with this. Do you remember who it was? It's Joshua, right? My Lord Moses, stop them! Now, Moses may be a reluctant, resentful, perhaps burned out leader, but he is not arrogant. And at this point in the story, he is painfully in touch with how little control he has over the people around him, how little control he has over God. And I think he's probably having a growing realization um, of his need to trust God and to entrust the people around him to God's care instead of trying to control them in any way. And so he says a word here, um, a statement so beautiful and powerful that um, today, this is actually one of only two verses from the entire 36 chapters of Numbers that have made it into our three-year lectionary cycle of Bible readings. He says, are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put the Spirit on all of them. Now, immediately in the next verse, what happens? They go back to their pattern. The people get their meat, piles of quail, and then God strikes them with a plague. Tons of people die, and that place is ever after called the Graves of Craving. But for just a brief moment there, we saw something new. In the Pentecost story in Acts 2, when all the people begin to speak in those languages, what's the response of the crowd? Aren't all those people who are speaking Galileans? Make no mistake, this is a slam. This is like calling someone a hick or a redneck. Galilee was like a podunk, small, rural, backwater, out of the way kind of place. This is where Jesus is from. Remember, and what they mean when they say that is they're saying, surely these people are not smart enough or cosmopolitan enough to speak more than one language. Remember John 1, when Jesus is introduced? This is Jesus of Nazareth, and they say, can anything good come out of Nazareth? 
Nazareth is in Galilee. So the Spirit first lands on the people they least expect, and the circle only gets wider and weirder from there, right? The Spirit travels from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to all the ends of the earth, and it always only ever thwarts any attempt to restrict or restrain its movement, any effort to control where and when and with whom it will manifest. So the reason I'm so bad at the story game <laughs> It's because I always want to control where the story's going, right? I'm always thinking two steps ahead about what I think would be the best direction for the story instead of just like listening to my teammates and responding in the moment and trusting, trusting that the words will come. Pentecost is the day that we celebrate the inbreaking of the Holy Spirit. It is a spirit um, of a beyond dimensions God on the move in our three-dimensional world. And the bad news is that we cannot control that spirit, not one bit. But you know what the good news is? We do not have to control that spirit, not one bit. John 3, 8, the spirit blows where it will. So when it comes to our walk of faith, we do not need to scheme or strategize or plan the movement of the Holy Spirit in any way. Definitely don't waste even a second of your time and energy trying to control, restrict, or shut it down. Just improvise. Just improvise. Have fun with all the different voices. When your turn comes, just take it and run with it. There is no script. Yes, and the story is not yet over. The end.